Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like growing up surrounded by music. For those who are taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking, of course, with musicians whose parents made a name for themselves in the music business. What was it like to be a child around that kind of fame? We hear about the interesting people they met backstage, who lived next door, and what they learned from those wonderful experiences. We'll see how they caught the music bug themselves, and ultimately, what inspired them to continue the family legacy and pursue their own musical journeys. I'm Brad Newman, the producer of this series, and once again, I'll be doing a little double duty today, taking on some of the hosting duties for what we're going to be calling our big band sessions. We're bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan here in New York City. William Sanchez is our engineer. This afternoon on a beautiful, beautiful sunny day, we're joined by a woman whose father was considered the greatest drummer that ever lived. And the funny thing about that is, and I, I think they'll both agree with me here, my two guests sitting in front of me, if he was here, he would have told you the same thing. Um, she got on stage with him when she was quite young, uh, performing on TV with her father when she was just 12 years old. She still sings with his band today. She's the daughter of the great Buddy Rich. Please welcome Kathy Rich to the podcast. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And, and Ross Konikoff, who played trumpet in Buddy Rich's band and can be heard on Buddy Rich's Plays and Plays and Plays album, is also with us. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Hi, Brad. Thank you. We'll hear about uh, what it was like to play and work with Buddy Rich a little later. So, Kathy. Yes. Um, what was it like growing up with Buddy Rich? Wow. Interesting, because I get that question a lot. And from my vantage point now... Looking back on it, it was quite a spectacular life. When you're in the midst of it, it's your father. So it would be like me asking you, what was it like growing up with your father? Mm. Because he was my dad, so it was dad. Um, he just did something different for a living than most of my friends. So when my dad was sleeping until 2 in the afternoon and all my friends would come over after school and you have to be quiet in the house, they would say, well, why? My dad's sleeping. Sleeping? My dad was up at 8 o'clock to go to work. So it's, it was different. He, you know, he was quite a character. I've been going around through the catalog that exists on YouTube, and, I mean, he's everywhere. everywhere. I mean, he's on Johnny Carson. <laughs> you see him doing these little drum clinics with people. I mean, I've never seen a guy represented so well, really, across the board. But how would you describe him? I mean, as a wow. person, because he is such an interesting <laughs> guy. You know, as a dad, I, I have to say he was probably the most spectacular dad that you could want. I mean, considering how much he was on the road, he managed to come home for anything that I was doing, whether it be, you know, some silly recital at school or a, a chorus thing that I was doing, or if I was singing in a group in, you know, Colorado and he would fly from New York for the opening night. I mean, he was always there. And, you know, he was he was fair. He was, you know, wonderful. He you know, just he showed up. He was just a great dad. Was he tough? Was he tough, too? He, he wasn't necessarily tough on me. I mean, there were moments when, of course, you know, you're going to get it because of something that you did. But um, in general, no, I don't think he was tough. Right. Sounds you know? like he was fair. Fair. He was a fair guy. Um, let's talk about how he ends up becoming this incredible drummer. It, it seems like, you know, a lot of times when you are around great people, it, you know, it 
comes to there around to the idea that were they born to do this? In his case, he really he was, was. <laughs> right? I mean, he, his yes. parents were in vaudeville. Yes. And, and tell me this story because he's pretty young. And, and what does his dad do? How does he figure out that this kid can actually hold a beat? It's pretty interesting. The story that I was told was that he was under two years old, maybe 18 months old, sitting in his high chair in the kitchen. And my grandfather had the radio on. And they noticed that this kid has a, a spoon and a fork and tapping out the rhythms to what songs are on the radio. And so my grandfather's ear perks up and he says, all right, let me change the channel, turns the dial, and Buddy keeps time perfectly to everything that they throw in front of him. So at, at that point, I think they got the idea that we may have something here. Amazing. I know. It's pretty insane. And so they had a song and dance act, my grandparents, and my grandfather at that point then sent my grandmother home to take care of her other kids and took my dad out on the road. So was he self-taught? I mean, because he did it so effortlessly. I mean, you watch him and, and he even, he is very self-critical, sure. too. I mean, he, he ends up getting these incredible gigs as a very young man. Um and yet he looks back at it, and you see later in life, he goes, yeah, you know, I wish I was better. Well, I think any, you know, genius is going to never be satisfied with what they've done in the past. Um, self-taught, it was a God-given gift. That was it. That's the only way you can describe it, because he never had a lesson. He never practiced. He never really, he just had it. You know, it was one of those things we were talking earlier that, you know, he sat down, and he didn't know how to be bad. You know, it was just the gift that he had. He was always great. So, you know, how do you, you know, get around in the rest of the world with that kind of genius? Amazing. You know, it's pretty insane. He, he didn't practice, though. Never practiced. But he played. Played every night. So that's <laughs> practice. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, he grew up with Frank Sinatra yes. and the Tommy Dorsey band. They were roommates on the road. Had to have some wild stories there. Those are two guys, pretty type A personalities. Mm, both. And my dad had already been on the Dorsey Band for a while when Frank came on. And their introduction was um, Tommy <laughs> brought Frank over to meet my dad. And he said, I'd like you to meet another pain in the ass. So <laughs> there you go. that's how they met. Um, but no, they were both. Buddy was already the star of the band. And then when Frank came on, he thought he was the star of the band. So, you know, the, you have two 19, 20, 21 year olds going at it, you know, to try to vie to be the star of this incredible band that was like the Beatles of those days. Um, and they were roommates and they didn't get along and they fought and they had, you know, some pretty knockdown, drag out famous fights. But, you know, later on, once Frank left the band and, you know, Buddy went on to do other things, they were the best of friends till the day they died. And interestingly enough, it, it was such a, a, a crazy kind of volatile relationship. Your dad described it as the first year they were roomies and the second year they wanted to put them in a boxing ring together. Oh, they, they fought. I mean, they came to fists. They definitely, you know, fought each other. But after, after all of this, your dad is, you know, he, he's restless. That, yeah. that is how I would describe him from my research. He just couldn't sit still. I don't think he was one to sit on his laurels, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, he had already, he was in the biggest band that there was at the time. Right. So, you know, when, when he left, he wanted, he wanted to form his own band. Um, and Frank wrote a check, wow. you know, for 50 grand at that point in the 1940s is a pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. So he, they were really very good friends. So let's talk about some other people that you were surrounded with growing up. Yes. Um, got a pretty interesting godfather. 
Jerry Lewis. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what was going on in your house? You know, it's funny because I was telling the story the other day that I would be, I was like in third, second or third grade. We were living in Miami and, you know, at the height of the Jerry Lewis, you know, craziness, you know, the Nutty Professor and, you know, all those crazy movies that came out. So Jerry was huge to kids. And I was in school and they're like, oh, I said, well, I'm going home because my Uncle Jerry's coming over. And like... Jerry Lewis. There, so <laughs> no one believed me, number one. And then I went home, and at, by the time I had gotten to my house from school, there was a line of kids down the block waiting to see if he actually showed up, which he did. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I met Jerry Lewis several years ago. We did an interview with him here at the channel, and uh, I, I got to produce the piece. And he is a character. I mean, <laughs> yes. you, you think of your, your father <laughs> and, and Jerry Lewis and Frank Sinatra. I mean, these guys are like magnets toward each other. You know, it, Jerry was, is still to this day. I mean, bless him. I mean, he's 90 years old now. Um, and I'm friends with all of his kids, and you know it's 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 been a long-lasting, lifelong relationship. I still consider him my uncle Jerry, so mm. it's you know it's pretty crazy. So talk to us about how you know you're you're 12 years old, and your dad starts you know pushing you out on stage with him. <laughs> I mean, is this something you wanted to do? You know, at the time, no, I, I had no idea. I I mean, I was always singing. I was always singing in the house. I was in the school choir, the sextet. You know, I I was you know I I loved to sing. And we were at home in Las Vegas, and we were riding around in the car one afternoon. He, he was home, and um, the beat goes on. Sonny and Cher came on the radio, and I was singing along with it. And he said, because the drums are in the song and whatever, so he said, why don't you come and record that with us? We're going to do an album in a couple of weeks. And I said, okay. You know, it was like one of those things, just like, okay. So a couple of weeks pass. He has an arrangement written, and we're in L.A., and we pull up to a nightclub and I looked at him and I said I thought we were going to record he said we are we're recording here I said in a nightclub <laughs> with people <laughs> like people in the audience wow. he's like yes we're doing a live album and I said I, I can't do that I can't do that I mean Pat walks inside the club it's packed with people and I had never ever sung in front of like normal regular people before it was always family and I glance over, and right where the vocal mic is set up is sitting Judy Garland. Wow. So if, if the first thing of walking into a nightclub wasn't enough, then I have Judy Garland sitting you know, ringside, and I ran backstage, and I said, there's no way I'm going to do this. I'm too nervous. I can't do it. It's live. I, I, I just I can't do it. So at that point, Judy calls me over to the table and sits me down for like 15 minutes and gives me this, the most amazing pep talk about how don't ever let anyone intimidate you. And if this is what you want to do, wow. you get up and do it and don't be afraid. And, you know, nerves are good. So just get up and use that. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. So I did. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And it is, you know, you can't take that for granted. Because Absolutely not. Not just the experience of getting to perform and getting to record in that kind of atmosphere, but just the, the, the coaching from Judy Garland. Seriously. And then years later, which we can talk about, you know, down the road, when I was 17, I was going on the Mike Douglas show with my dad. And sitting in the wings is Betty Davis. <sighs> And again, I'm like racked with nerves and she's standing next to me and I, she's like, what's the matter? 
I said, I'm a little nervous. And she said, the day that you don't get nervous is the day you should worry. Now, you just get out there. Like, they all had, like, that same advice. So, so tell me, though, I mean, you're Buddy Rich's daughter, and he is a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you nervous? I would have been nervous, I think, as his kid, thinking, <laughs> I'm going to let him down. Because I, I've seen live television performances, <laughs> and if the band comes in wrong, he stops. Oh, yeah. Uh, he doesn't care. He's no, going to no, stop, stop, and we're going to start, start over. Again. Let's start it again. Let's do that one more time. Absolutely. And I'm knocking on wood right now, because... I never felt this was you know you asked me about him as a father and this was the one thing I think that you know as parents that we should instill in our kids is that he never made me feel like I was a disappointment mm-hmm. or that I had done anything that he wasn't proud of so I think just the mere fact that I was getting up on stage and trying to do it that was enough for him So Ross let's let's talk to you a little bit here um you know, you played with him because we're going to get into him as, as a band leader. Um, what was he like to work for? Well, if you showed up with your shoes shined and you played your heart out every night, he was great. We all had the same work ethic, and we had a band like that for three years from 75 to 78 called The Killer Force, and every night was just you got off that bus and you knew you were going to get in there and kill it. So yeah, I had a ball. That, that's the thing, though, if we're talking honestly here. He wanted to kill it every night. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't ready to go, he was ready to give it to you. Um, I, got a, I got a small excerpt here of him <laughs> actually uh, actually talking. I've had to beep something out here. Um, I don't want to scare you with it. It's <laughs> just a small thing. one. Um, but this is him kind of upset with the band after a performance. You think I'm the only one who's going to work up there? Well, you motherfuckers sit out there and cram all over this f***ing joint. What do you think this is, anyhow? What kind of plane do you think this is? What kind of miscues do you call this? What f***ing bed do you think you're playing on, motherfuckers? So he, he, could get, he could get irate. Well, the band went through different stages. Sometimes he'd have to bring in three or four or five new guys. And sometimes the level of playing isn't at its peak when you get a uh, predominantly mediocre band. And he's gone through phases like that, as every band has. And that tape, particularly at that time, uh, the guy who recorded that was part of a band of guys who were, uh, they had sort of, attitudes that they were better than they were they were young and experienced and the prevailing attitude was that we don't need this but we're here so but he sensed that and he was frustrated because the band never really uh, achieved the level that he was used to you know it was his name out there and if the band was subpar they're not going to walk away saying that you know the second trombonist sucked they're going to say the buddy rich band sucked so you know yes he was very 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 protective about the music and wanting it to be perfect I, I was with uh, John Pizzarelli here the other day, Yes, and he was talking about um, an interaction that his father, the legendary guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli, and, and Bucky was actually, they were, you know, recording with uh, tenor saxophonist Zoot Sims, oh. and Buddy heard about it, and this is interesting. Take a listen. My father, uh, my father was making a duo record uh, with Zoot Sims. And he was, uh, he said, I got, he says, I got to the studio and he goes, there were drums and a bass and, and two chairs for me and Zoot. And I was going, well, what's going on here? And the guy, a guy who was one of the guys producing the record or something said, I ran into Buddy Rich today on the street. And Buddy said, well, what are you doing? He goes, I'm recording Bucky Pizzarelli and Zoot Sims today at, at uh, the studio. And Buddy said, 
I've never recorded with Zoot Sims. I want to be on the record. <laughs> so <laughs> they said, sure. He said, great. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be there. And so they got the drums and Milt Hinton and, and one whole side of this, what was supposed to be a duo record with my father and Zoot Sims, is my father, Zoot Sims, Buddy Rich, and Milt Hinton playing together. It's a hell of a record. Yeah. Wow. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Mm. That's, that's great. And, and there's another story I, I'm going to share, not to go too much back to back, but this is, this is a wonderful story, too. And, and, Russ, you know, jump in because I want to get your experience because that's, you know, the problem with all of this and even in the media is that, you know, you have one negative interaction and everybody pounces. They want to talk about that forever. The, the thing is, is that you, you have somebody who really deeply cares about the music. And when it's good, they're not there when he's in the bus yucking with everybody and, and giving everybody drinks. That was his frustration, what you hear. It's not his anger toward the guys. It's his, his disbelief that a band could be this cocky and this bad. So here's another story that John Pizzarelli uh, is talking about Buddy Rich and Benny Goodman playing at the White House for President Reagan and King Hussein of Jordan. Take a listen. My father was going to do the White House with, uh, it was the King of Jordan, uh, King, King Hussein. Yeah. And uh, uh, his favorite musician was Buddy Rich. And Reagan, Ronald Reagan, was going to get Benny Goodman to play. So when Benny called my dad, he said, he wants Buddy Rich. Bucky said, give him a call. So they had uh, Benny Goodman, Hank Jones on piano, Milt Hinton, Buddy Rich, and my dad. And, and there's a, I have the tape of it, which is amazing. And he said, Buddy just stood there. And, you know, everybody used to think, oh, Buddy's this rough and tumble guy, and he's going to be like this. Yes, Mr. Goodman. No, Mr. Goodman. Whatever you'd like, Mr. Goodman. He sat there. And the thing is romping. I mean, the record is just amazing. Buddy's playing this amazing stuff. And then finally, and at one point, my father said, Benny Goodman turned to my father and he said, this son of the bitch can sure play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> How good is that? That's true. I mean, Ross, tell me, do you think Buddy was the greatest drummer in the world? Oh, he was. it wasn't even a matter of uh, comparison. He, uh, he could do things. Every, I stood right next to him on the bandstand and watching him, and connecting it with what's humanly possible, every night was another. You'd have to process it again and again and again. It, it seems like it was a it was a struggle for him, a battle between trying to keep making great music with the people he really wanted to, and getting to play the music he really wanted to play. So it was it was it was a conflict there because he wanted to play with Harry James, right? But Harry James wanted to play all these popular standards too. Yeah. And he didn't want to do all that. He said we got all these great charts and we're not playing the great charts. Sure. So I got to so then he'd leave Harry James and then he left Artie Shaw and left Tommy Dorsey. Yes. You know, and he leaves all these people and yet all he really wants to do is play with somebody that he can really respect like Benny Goodman. And then he, he was just great with him. Here's, here's a little bit end of that where they were discovering how great this was and, and Benny Goodman. Benny was a Gene Krupa guy. That was Buddy's competitor, you know. Sure. But here he is with, with Buddy Rich. He's like, wow. So then he turned to Buddy and he said, you want to play Sing, Sing, Sing? And he says, and Buddy looked at him and said, are you kidding? <laughs> he said, sure. Can you do that? And then boom, boom, boom. It's magical. But I mean, it was like they were both sort of afraid of each other, but they made this amazing music. 
I think it does come back to what we were talking about, and that it is about the music. Yeah. You know, Buddy was supposed to be tough on some of his bandmates, but that's because it didn't measure up. Well, they were younger than him, and he was trying to teach them something. And here he was with a contemporary of, ben, you know, Benny Goodman. He wasn't messing around. He wasn't going to—he knew what Benny had to offer. And there's even a Merv Griffin show where Benny and Buddy play mm-hmm. together, and when Merv's interviewing Buddy Rich, he keeps saying, I made a nice record with Mr. Goodman. And they get on the bandstand. It still gets to me. Uh, my father and Jimmy Rolls, Jack Six, Buddy Rich, and Benny Goodman playing I Know That You Know. And it's, it's romping. And I just go, and because Buddy's sitting there going, I'm, I'm playing with Benny Goodman. And Benny's going, well, this guy's great. And everybody's making music. You know, they're on a level playing field. But the respect is there. Like, you know, this is excitement. You know, I wanted to be here. And it's, it was a beautiful thing about Buddy. Yeah, I, I hear you listening to that, Kathy. You know, it's, moisture it, in your eyes. It's true. It's all about, you know, he respected Mr. Goodman, and he called Frank Mr. Sinatra when he was speaking about him in later years. And, you know, I think that all of those people that came up together, you know, in that era, later on when they got a chance to play with each other again, it was just such a, it was a magical experience. And, you know, he loved Benny. And respected the musicianship of Benny. And when they got to play together, when they did that White House thing, I know I was supposed to go and I didn't go. And funny story is that King Hussein had asked specifically for Buddy to play. And a couple of years later, we were in Paris and we were eating dinner in a restaurant and there's all the security around. And over in the corner is a group of people. And my dad says, who's here? And he's like, that's King Hussein. So Buddy said, well, tell him I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) So they go over and they're like, King, blah, blah, blah. The king gets up. He comes over to our table. I'm standing there. I'm like, the king of Jordan. And he's like, my dad gets up and he goes, king, baby. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Honest to God. And they embraced and they were friends. I I love it about big personalities. There's zero fear. And it is total open arms how they can just embrace one another. Um, and he always, you know, my dad always, the great thing about him was that you, there was never an unexpressed thought or emotion. You know, you never had to guess where you were with him. He hmm. was always going to tell you straight. I like that. And that's the best thing in the world. Yes. Because you never have to guess where, where's my position here. You, you know, he either you likes know? you or he loves you. There's Immediately. No, there's no, there's <laughs> there's no middle no ground. Middle. It's always like, yeah or no. You know, when later in life, when he did get sick, some mm-hmm. of these folks who he, early in his career, I mean... Frank was basically a neighbor in California. Yeah, he lived right behind us. And 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 tell me that story, some because there's some real gentle stuff. I mean, both seem very hard on the outside, but they're soft. My dad had had quadruple bypass surgery, and Frank, who lived behind us, would come every day to walk with him around our complex. And again, you know, another man who has been maligned in the press and, you know, many misconceptions about him as well, who was, if you were Frank's friend, you were his friend for life. And that was it. There was anything you needed, anything you wanted. He was there for you, no matter what. So he came every single day for a month and walked with my dad a mile around the complex. And one night, (laughs) it's raining. There's a knock at the door. I go to the door. And it's like so surreal because you... You know, it just doesn't seem, something's out of place. And there's Frank Sinatra. It's raining in Palm Springs. He's got an umbrella, a loaf of bread under one arm, and a pot of spaghetti sauce. Mm. 
<laughs> and he said, I, I just had the bread flown in from Jersey. Can Buddy have garlic? <laughs> Honestly. And he comes in. I just, the only thing I could say is, what are you doing here? That was the only thing I could think of. He's like, where's the kitchen? Goes into the kitchen. Buddy's in the bedroom. My mother was in L.A. And Frank and I just sat in the kitchen while he's making the pasta and just talking. And I just remember saying to myself, which was, I'm glad I did at that moment, take this all in. Because this doesn't happen every day. Frank Sinatra doesn't cook in your kitchen every day. Right. You know, and he looked like he had stepped out of cellophane. He was like perfect. Wow. You know, amazing. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when you are around that at, at an early age, it, it's kind of hard to top that. I mean, I'm glad you took that moment where you <laughs> yes. said, you know, take this in. Was it, was it hard to step outside of your father's shadow? You know, I actually never felt like I was in a shadow, so there really was nothing to step out of. It, life changed after he was gone, obviously, um, but because he had asked me to try and do these things of keeping the band going and doing something for kids and keeping the music playing, I think that in the past 30 years since he's been gone, I like to think that we have done that mm. for him. Because I, I do it because he did so much for me in my life that, that that's the only thing I can give him back now is to make sure that he's never forgotten. Well, he wanted that legacy to survive. You know, I think that's another reason probably why he got a little irritated if, if people weren't holding their own. Because he wanted this to live. Yes. Forever. Forever. And, and he plays with a kind of passion. It, I mean, it, the speed and everything, and it, it, and it really does look effortlessly. I mean, yeah. I, it's hard to watch him and think, how many suits did this guy go through on tour? <laughs> well, we used to ask him how he could play so fast. One night on the bus, he never spoke about himself or about his past, ever. He never went backwards. He always straight ahead. And we said to him one night, we got him, we were all having a few beers on the bus. He not buddy, he never <laughs> drank. But we're all, we got kind of loose, loose and dared to ask him. How can you play? What does it feel like to play that fast? And he finally opened up for a split second and he said, the more I relax, the faster I can play. And, mm. and everybody on the bus just shook their heads like that's the Zen, the definition of a perfect master, a Zen master. Right. Just become, you know, just loot, let yourself into it well, and you become the drum. And, and, and his drum rolls, too. I mean, you know, I played a little drums growing up, you know, oh, it's 7th well, and 8th grade, you know. right? Well, I mean, you yeah, know, but yeah. it just the idea is you can only kind of go, and even if you really relax, it yeah. kind of rolls and you yeah. go faster. This is my single stroke. But, but he gets, <laughs> no, but he gets yeah, another gear. It's it's a total another, and, and even three or four and five beyond that, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's incredible. It kills me because all these people on the internet now, you know, they try to break down, well, he's doing this and he's doing that and it's the molar and it's the this and it's the eye tooth <laughs> the what molar. the molar technique the molar, whatever but that you is can't good, break it down. I like the molar technique <laughs> well he didn't even know right because he, he wasn't classically trained you, it was from the ear and he it, did it change every night Ross his, his solos yeah he threw in different things and once in the three years it didn't work and he got so mad, he tried to do something ridiculous, tricky, crazy, like that, and it was about this, about a human hair off. And he got so mad that as he was playing, he did something that was ten times crazier, and it, it just, even the whole band even turned around and said, oh, oh, how did I really hear that? Wow. He was, yeah. when he turned it on, if he was angry, forget, forget it. it. You know, it's interesting also is, you know, drummers... 
you know, they're pretty accurate, but they, they do often hit their sticks against one another. I've listened closely. He doesn't hit his sticks. It's so weird like, that you said that. You know, ever. I, I think I might have heard it once on one thing, and, and it was shocking because I was looking at listening to the documentary, and I think on one excerpt of one thing, I thought I heard a stick against stick. But I was watching some of those Gene Krupa, uh, you know, battles that he would do, and Gene hits his sticks against, I mean, nothing against Gene. No, no. But it, but it happened, and it happens it for happens. any drummer. Of course. But it did not happen for him. It's weird. Right? Yes. We were just talking about this this morning. I said, you know, you never hear him click a stick. You ne- They never Ever. clank. No. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your son. He's a drummer, right? Yes, he is. Now, is it tough to have your grandfather be <laughs> the greatest drummer in the world and then try to make a living as a drummer? You know, luckily... He doesn't try to make a living as a drummer. So, I mean, he did the whole band thing. He was in many very popular bands as their original drummers. And he he's beyond that. He's a really great musician. He plays piano. He plays guitar. He taught himself, you know, all these things when he was a kid. Um, he's actually a pastor, really? a music pastor. Oh, okay. So he's going for his Ph.D. right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's so, great. Yeah, he kind of took a different route. Um. You know, he was tenacious right up to the end. Yes. Again, this is sort of interesting. You know, he was sick, and I hear even at the end he couldn't speak, but he was still tapping his his fingers. You know, he actually was okay. I mean, he got a diagnosis, and, you know, we were all like, uh, you know, he's beaten it before. He's, you know, he's come back from things that they said he'd never come back from. But um, it's interesting that, this was the one that got him. And they said, you know, he can last for another couple of years and whatever, but he would be slowly declining. And when he heard that, you know, this is the strength of this man and his spirit, if you will. Um, he didn't want to go out that way. He didn't want to go out where he'd be in a wheelchair and you'd have to, you know, it'd get worse and worse and worse and you'd have to do more and more and more for his care. Um, and I remember the night before he passed away, he called me in and started talking to me about these things that I'm telling you about. I want you to do this with the band, and I want you to try to do this. And I'm like, you're talking to me like you're not going to be here. And he said, well, I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to hear that. And I'm like, oh, you're being ridiculous. It's going to be fine. And he died the next day. Wow. So he, didn't, he, he willed himself out. What do you think he would want people who listen to his music now, what would he want them to hear? What would he want them to think about what he was doing every night? You know, that he played with his heart and soul. And I believe that you hear that in his music. And, you know, most people say, oh, well, he was so he was the fastest and he was this. He was a musician. He played with such musicality. And if you really listen to everything that, that he's done, you'll hear that music coming out and most people don't think that the drums are a musical instrument but he his idea was the drum should be played the same way as a Stradivarius it's you know it's a it's an instrument well I, I know for those who watched him play it, it was also about those legendary drum solos yes. so as we say goodbye let's let's take one last listen to the legendary buddy rich here he is in bugle call rag
Man, doesn't get better than that. No. Nope. Thank you, Kathy Rich, Russ Konikoff. Thank you so much Thanks for being for here. Thank you, us. Brad. It was wonderful being here with you. Thanks. Thank you. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side, the Producer's Notes Edition. Since we recorded this episode, we lost another great one. Jerry Lewis passed away last month at the age of 91. I'll never forget him. I remember when I met him for the first time, I was using sort of an ordinary big pen. He looked at me and told me, a good producer should have a decent pen. And then he reached into his breast pocket, pulled out this silver pen, one that had his face on it, by the way, and gave it to me, something I still have to this day. I also caught up with Kathy Rich, who's busier than ever. She spends most of her life keeping Buddy's music and his spirit alive. And just a couple of days ago, Buddy would have been 100 years old. And to celebrate, he was inducted into the Palm Springs Walk of Stars, something that would have meant a lot to Buddy since he lived there for many years. Next up, apparently the movie. Kathy was pretty tight-lipped about titles or who might play her famous father, but if all goes well, Buddy Rich will soon be immortalized in a biopic that's sure to entertain. Kathy says plans for a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame is expected with the release of the film in 2018. And if you like what you hear, become a subscriber. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and spread the word. Children of Song, Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.